0: And welcome back to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles and with me today, as always, is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friends, Charles. Oh, yes. We say friends the plural again today because we are joined by the fantastic author, Stephen Arian. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Looking forward to this. Oh, it's the pleasure is all ours. People might, you know, remember, recognize Steven's name. You know, he's the author of the critically acclaimed Quest for Heroes duology, as well as the Age of Darkness and Age of Dread trilogies. His debut, Battle Mage, was a finalist for the David Gemmell Morningstar Award and Mm. won the inaugural Hellfest Inferno Award. Now, that is quite an award to win, (laughs) uh, the Hellfest Inferno Award. You can't argue with that. And he's previously written for Tord.com as well. (laughs) (laughs) I think some of our guests would nominate us for that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) but uh welcome Stephen. thank you so much and of course obviously we're here today to talk about your upcoming release the judas blossom book one of the nightingale and the falcon which comes out on july 11th so only a few days away or like yeah. a week or two away at the time of this recording and um you know, we want to you know thank uh, Angry Robot for sending us a couple copies. We had the privilege of being able to read it in anticipation of talking to you today, Steven. So uh yeah, congratulations on the upcoming release.
1: Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Start of a new trilogy, a new world, all brand new. So it's uh starting over a whole reset button again. You know, <laughs> this is it. Right. New fans, old fans get something completely different, and we start over but a lot That's... of folks might
2: find this uh this new world somewhat familiar because mm. you're taking a crack at historical fantasy here with a focus primarily on the mongolian empire and yeah uh, we were we were super excited we don't get to dive into as much historical fiction or historical fantasy here mm-hmm. as maybe we'd like to but we it was it was really cool seeing how you blended uh, some real historical figures and settings and uh, events uh, with with the fantastical that we're Mm -hmm. really excited to read so uh, props to you for finding that awesome blend there (laughs) thank you it was a challenge to say the least yeah
0: so sure. what inspired you to take this such um divergent path here and dive into um historical fantasy what was the inspiration for just you know what i'm going to write a book using like the mongolian empire as a reference
1: um well apparently i i like to torch myself because it was <laughs> really difficult to do um i li- never want to do the same thing twice when i start a new series i want to do something different and i'd done two trilogies where magic was very heavy i did the duology the quest for heroes which was based upon the quest trope but with other things going on and there was not mm-hmm. a lot of magic in that and for the last so four years ago i'd been watching a bunch of things i'd been reading some non-fiction books about this era um i don't know if you saw the netflix tv series marco polo I did, and I had a question queued up about that. that up to me. <laughs> there you yeah. go. So that <laughs> takes place in the same era, but a different part of the world. And you're having now that you've read the Dews Blossom, you know there's overlap with certain characters that appear in the book. Absolutely. It's not a spoiler; it's part of history. So Kublai right. Khan obviously features <laughs> mm-hmm. over in Mongolia and China.
0: Such a great the character story, in that
1: show too. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Benedict Wong, British actor, fantastic <laughs> in that role. And of course, now he's Wong in all the Marvel <laughs> yeah. movies, and totally <laughs> <Right>. unrecognizable again. <laughs> Um, But yes, so I'd watched a bunch of that, all these kind of things, and I thought we always see the stories from the viewpoint of the invaders, in this case, you know, the Mongols taking on, occupying, trying to attack the Chinese and so on with Kublai, and I wanted to flip it around and have the story from the perspective of the people being invaded, fighting back Mm -hmm. against a rebellion. Also, I was leaning into my kind of heritage and history because some of my family comes from the Middle East and from Iran. Um, mm-hmm. It's where my surname comes from and my dad. So all of these things swirled around in my brain four or five years ago. And then I started researching different time periods and looking into it and different events. And all of the main events in the Judas Blossom are historically accurate up to a point. Mm-hmm. So they all they all happened who was there how they happened and what exactly happened has changed a little bit and the timings have changed to make the story flow more cohesively because mm-hmm. sometimes the wars would go on for two three four years and i can't just be like yep now we're gonna skip two years and the war's <laughs> over and now the story carries on it's like <laughs> people be like well what happened in those two years okay that's seven books by itself i haven't got time so i have had to <laughs> manipulate certain things so that's sure. why that's the fantasy part if you like mm-hmm. um but th- there is some mild supernatural, supernatural other stuff in the book. But generally, it's fairly close to our world in terms of history. So people are expecting, you know, dragons or overt magic or anything like that. That isn't the case. This is more politics, war, sieges, um, spies, spy, spycraft and spies and all kind of backstabbing and stuff like that. And court politics that you've seen in other shows and books uh, with mm-hmm. a little bit of source on the edge that's something else that creeps in around the edges. So for sure. And that's part of what I
2: loved about this. I would feel really confident recommending this to fans of historical fiction who don't delve too deeply into the fantasy genre (laughs) typically, because uh, there there are those supernatural elements, but uh, they're subtle compared to a lot of what we've read on this podcast. And then you also have the fantasy elements because I know when I first uh, saw this, I was like, "Oh, is this historical fiction?" We don't read a lot of that on this podcast, but all right, let's let's see. And then I saw it was called historical fantasy. I was like, "All right, there's gonna be there's gonna be something here," and there is something <laughs> to uh, enjoy for our fantasy fans too. It's a nice uh, middle ground there. It's I'm sure
1: hard to find the happy medium, but I think he did it. Thank you. It it was difficult to marry the two things together because I wanted it to feel fairly historically accurate. I've taken some things out on purpose. I've ignored certain names, details, situations. I've streamed down, streamlined some of the things because it's such a complicated part of history and a part of the world. And there's so many other things going on that I had to kind of ignore some of the research that I've done because I'm already throwing readers into a brand new world. And even though it's part of Earth, it'll be a part of the world they're probably not familiar with cultures, mm-hmm. customs, names, countries that no longer exist, that you know might sound familiar to what we have today. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of new information that I'm throwing at a person. So I, I take, I've taken out some things on purpose and made certain things slightly more comfortable for an English-speaking audience. When it's translated in, into other languages, they might start putting some of that stuff back in and, you know, using the correct terms. But I thought for English readers, let's just kind of ease their way into it, and then we'll trickle things mm-hmm. in throughout the story. So.
0: Right. Um, To quote your own words here in the process, you said, so while the Judas Blossom follows historic events, I've taken a number of liberties. The goal is to create a dramatic story set in a part of the world many people know little or nothing about, while hopefully remaining true to the spirit of history. I'm wondering when reading that, how much pressure did you feel to be like historically accurate? Was that a challenging thing for you to figure out what is like History you wanted to make sure was included and what you could skip over. What was that process like?
1: It was, as I said, I like to torture myself. Apparently, it was <laughs> really, really difficult. It was really tricky. There were certain events that I couldn't ignore because they were so big and they changed that part of the world so much. Having read the book, you know what one of them is. It's to do mm-hmm. with with a siege, and it changes. Mm-hmm a great many things it's like dominoes that trickle and, and hit other things and carry on and it's like I had to include that and when during the editing process I'd be talking to my editor and she'd say can we move this event and I, I sort of thought about and said if you do that it'll have this knock on effect here 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 and here like uh okay mm. can we can we change the angle slightly it's it was very very difficult mm. as the trilogy goes on I've taken more liberties and I veer a little bit more away from. Being as close to history as I can because events change and the timeline changes, and I can't jump five years and that kind of thing. But to begin with, it was really, really difficult. I was essentially dancing between the raindrops whilst also right. throwing a bunch of other stuff in that unless you're a really close historian for that period, you won't realize is fiction. So there's mm. there are mirrors of things in the book. So in the front of the book, I mentioned a thing called the House of Strength or the Zircana which is real, but there's something mm-hmm. else in the book that mirrors it that is fictional. So there's things like that, that someone would read it and go, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense too. And I'm thinking, well, how good. <laughs> yes, yes you, of course. Excellent, all according, <laughs> to... <laughs> I... <laughs> all according to my plan, yeah. Right. It, it, so there are a couple of other things, like um, uh, my copy editor read it, and there are a couple of anachronisms in it. Like she said, you've got someone drinking coffee, Technically, they probably wouldn't have had it then. And I spoke to some friends and one said, if the coffee was coming from South America, where a lot of coffee comes from now, it wasn't there in that era. However, they could have got coffee from Ethiopia and some of the other countries in Africa and transported it. So if you really wanted to have coffee, you could. If it's critical to the plot. And I'm like, it was just someone having a drink. No. So I took it out and changed it to tea. And tea's okay.
2: Mostly. But we'll, we'll leave it
1: with tea. And ah. but that kind of stuck out. I, I tried to avoid modern phrase, like phrases of people saying, Yeah, and okay, and how are you and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did so the language, while modern for the 21st century up to a point, I've tried to rough off some of the harsher edges as well in other places. There again, the more barriers mm-hmm. I put in place for a reader who doesn't know this world, the more likely they're gonna stumble. And I want them to enjoy the story, not be constantly going get the dictionary out what's that word mean oh right okay who's that right okay and then carry on again I'm like I've, they've lost the story then at that point
2: yeah right. I was really interested in this idea that uh Charles read earlier you you note that it's in a part of the world many people know little or nothing about and I was like uh you know a lot of our listeners who are avid fantasy readers and myself included it's like uh we probably know a lot more about westeros and middle earth than we do about the history of the mongolian empire you know you said something in westeros we're like okay and all, oh, the, yeah, houses okay. And yeah, all the, the houses and then here i'm like oh it was uh, like uh was uh this an actual con? I'm like talking about uh your main characters here, and I'm like, oh yes, yes, real character here. <laughs> Did the and, Mongols uh, so really
0: siege that yeah. uh, city? But meanwhile, <laughs> oh yeah, they took over King's Landing, sure. I knew <laughs> yeah. that. Right, oh yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> and and this year, this made-up year,
1: too. <laughs> yeah, Let's you're almost say, presented like... with <laughs> yeah, go <laughs> ahead. Just say the, the year is like to be like seven seven-two after so and so, right? That's after the the Battle of So and So, the two rivers. Yeah, I got you. Right. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Right, okay. But, yeah.
0: I know about eight generations of Targaryens, but only <laughs> two of the two of Genghis
1: Khan. So right. You know, this is I'm like this <laughs> isn't
2: Genghis Khan. I'm lost. <laughs> like, but
1: you did a great job of introducing the characters. So, yeah, the story takes place in 1260 AD for those who are keeping track. Um, mm-hmm. and it follows one of the f- Four characters who rules one of the four main areas, and he's the grandson of Genghis Khan. So there's references to Genghis Khan, whose real name was Temujin Khan. Mm -hmm. And it's he he died, and then his uh one of his relatives took over, and then his grandsons all took over. And um, yeah, some of the main events at the very beginning happened as well. Um, someone dies and it triggers who's going to become the next great Khan and all those kind of things, and all those things are true. Um and some of the really odd things in there are also true. It's not really a spoiler. There's the the silver fountain in the um, Mongolian capital, which is real. At first, I thought, that can't be real. And I looked into it and it's absolutely real. It's this wow. um, drinks wow. fountain, essentially, that was engineered by, I think it was a French architect and engineer, that essentially, instead of um, having water coming out, it was different alcoholic drinks that were const- constantly <laughs> permanently flow in the capital city. So you didn't need to go up to the bar. You just went up to the fountain, stuck out your glass. There you are. Thanks very much. Drink Cheers. It. Yeah. It up again. Probably safer to drink than the water, you know? <laughs> yep. And this is why mm-hmm. one of the Khans died of gout, I think, because he basically drank himself to death and his liver just was destroyed um, because he was drunk so much. So.
0: They're playing the yeah, long game real. to take them mm-hmm.
1: out. Yeah, this is it. Yeah, those clever Frenchmen. Yeah,
0: and that, you know that's the interesting thing about this because I will say the the to me I didn't know really where fantasy you know started and and history began you know all of that stuff except for obviously when people had superpowers and stuff was blowing up I could kind of figure that piece out but the actual history (laughs) and the settings as well is what's truly fascinating because a lot of this is in persia and you describe all these beautiful things and when you know mongols they raid cities and and capitals and things and when that happens it's just like the immense beauty and potential of these cities is something you manage to capture so well it's like wow these these silver fountains these libraries these things that the mongols are just gonna plow right through and it's like, Oh, yeah, we have to destroy it. Otherwise, they won't bend to our will, you know, so it's like, man, all of this lost history as well that we're kind of reading about in here, you can really, it adds this extra level of connection, because you can feel when libraries and stuff explode in total fantasy worlds. But it's like, wow, that was really in Persia. And that's gone now. Like, who yeah. knows how beautiful it could have been if it was still around today, like some of the things that we've lost, how history could have been different. You know, you kind of you connect with it on a different level when you use real cities, real historical events that had a real fallout in the world. And, and you know, you do go into some. um Details worthy of a Hellfest Inferno award Uh, when
1: some of these sieges (laughs) happen. I was just going by the title of the award.
0: That's all I know about it. But um, I can tell you about
1: it. I can tell you about it. It's a great. It's a great one. So it's (laughs) Hellfest is a heavy metal and rock festival that they have every year or every couple of years Mm. in France, and basically they gather like the best of the best of everyone comes. You name heavy metal band, they have been there, and Mm. a large number of rock and heavy metal fans read fantasy. So they just married the two mm. things together. French publisher said, "Right, we're going to do this award. Vote for your favorite for the books that are coming out this year," and they did. And and uh, you know, all the people voted, and and I won that that first year, the first award. So yeah, wow! Thanks to so all the me- awesome. metal and rock fans out there in France and uh, that voted for me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's awesome.
1: That's mm. so
0: cool that you were able to, um, you know, tap into this fan base. That's pretty cool that they, they all just voted for you. They wrote you in basically, right?
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, it wasn't yeah, like the, a nomination. The, no, it was down to like um, the, the the top six, where people like Clive Barker, Joe Abercrombie, me, and and three wow. others in a public wow. vote. So uh, other people who have won it have been Ed McDonald, Anthony Ryan, um, oh, yeah. some of the other people they've also won. Like in subsequent years, they've won when their various books have come out. So yeah, it's it's a yeah. great festival and a great award um, that's that you know, focused like... in France and French readers. But yeah, so Battle Mage, which, as the title suggests, is my debut. <laughs> A lot of fights, a lot of wars, a lot of explosions, a lot of <laughs> right. killing. They loved it. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sounds it's like a, a lot stages, of Grimdark authors get represented. Well. Basically, well. yeah. A lot of, kind of <laughs> yeah. darker fantasy and, and less the cuddly stuff at Grim at uh, Hellfest, more the heavy stuff. Yeah. Job <laughs> mm, of yeah. and, you know, <laughs> not much cuddling in one of his books, let's be honest. <laughs> and when it is it's uh, pretty awkward <laughs> always unpleasant <laughs> fantastic but yeah, uh, yeah it's always unpleasant, unpleasant to read
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure for sure that's funny I, I guess yeah the the overlap between like heavy metal and and rock and stuff to fantasy mm. for sure yeah 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 it seems like a good seems like a good crew where that overlaps and certainly you go into lots of of you know of that when you're depicting the violence of like, say, a siege on a city or something like that. And it allows you to bring in some of those themes about conquest and the historical impact that they had and, and you know, people's lost to this invasion. And it, it's it's almost like using the tool of historical accuracy within the fantasy genre to Convey that kind of impact, I thought was a really unique blend because we've read stuff from like Guy Gavril Kay, for example, who who draws very heavily from, you know, historical events and does tons of research, but his works are almost all fiction I know he draws on like real dynasties and stuff for certain books but I don't know if he's pulling in like actual characters like you're mentioning like Kublai Khan and, and and all of that and Genghis Khan and and working that into your story you know so it, it just hits a little different I feel
1: yeah yeah it's that balance of, of some of the characters are real in the book some of them are fictional and some of them Even though we're real characters, we don't know much about them. So I think in the introduction, um, the author's note I mentioned about Princess Kokushin. We don't know much about her at all. The story kind of ends really suddenly and abruptly. I'm like, well, there's a huge question mark there that we Mm -hmm. don't know. And you could do all sorts of interesting things there. And so she became one of the main characters of the story. Mm -hmm yeah and that gives you a lot
2: of flexibility when there's characters that everything is not entirely fleshed out for i think even like getting away from of course genghis and then kublai like those mm-hmm. are probably the two that get the uh you know the most fleshed out uh, yeah. history established around them but uh, you choose some characters that it give you some leeway and uh, it's it's exciting to watch you get into their heads it's also uh, interesting to see uh, you mentioned that you get into a lot of the characters that are more of the the conquered than the conquerors uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you have uh, you mentioned princess kokachin you mentioned uh, or you haven't mentioned yet but we'll mention uh Kayvon, the persian general yep. and i think uh, it's it's so cool how you depict all these uh characters and uh it's like a very uh I guess, morally gray depiction of Pretty much all of them. I, I think you yes probably agree that uh, every character, every one of your main characters is morally gray. Every time you're like, Oh,
1: is it is it pronounced hulagu? I don't you're gonna do a lot better. Than I me. think so but... because there's like 12 spellings, and I'm like, I'm gonna pick a pronunciation and a spelling and stick with it. And that's the consistency. Sure. That's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like hulagu Khan, who's
2: presented as among the the cons is the peacemaker. So mm-hmm. you're like, oh, he, he can't be too bad a dude. And and then you get into, well, what does it mean to be a peacemaker uh, that goes by Khan? Still, uh, <laughs> probably a lot of violent tendencies, but you get to see some of the more tender sides of him and his like romantic relationship. And that's coupled with then the absolutely brutal sides of him. And uh, I think uh, you you go to show the like humanity of each of these characters while also uh, getting into the aspects that like. These weren't great people. They were doing some pretty messed up stuff. And we, we always, you mentioned oh, yeah. Joe Abercrombie. It's like, we always appreciate when these characters are fully fleshed
1: out, warts and all. Uh, mm. well, well done with that one. Thank you. Yeah. Because even though, I, I think in general, every time I ask someone about this and say, who's your least favorite character? Almost all of the time, everyone says Hulagu Khan. Be- mm. And, you know, he's the most gray, I would say, of the characters. However, no one's ever said he feels two dimensional or he doesn't feel like a real person because he still has hopes and dreams and ambitions and feelings and things that he wants and things that he cares about and people that he cares about, you know, his, his family, his, his sons and daughters and wives and all the rest of it. And it's stuff that he wants. Um, And and then it's a case of, well, what does he have to do to get what he wants? And he's willing to go further than a great many people And it won't keep him up at night like it will most other people who've got perhaps more of a more of a moral compass or they worry about things more. He knows what needs to be done. Um, You know, his grandfather did it before him. He started building this empire. And he says at one point to his brother, we've already accomplished far more than our grandfather ever dreamed of. And we're not Mm -hmm. we're not done. So there's there's more that they want to do, but they understand it costs a lot to do it, but they they, they see it as the sort of like, we're willing to do it, willing to pay the personal cost, which of course is kind of an odd thing to say when they're not the ones suffering, but (laughs) from their point of view, that's how they view it. Whereas people being attacked and repressed and invaded, it's a very, very different story. So I'm trying to make all of them feel realistic, as you say, warts and all, because nobody's particularly good. Some of them Mm. are slightly better than the others, and some of them are really quite unpleasant people.
2: Right. Yeah. Gulagu reads more, like, closer to a protagonist than an outright villain, too, which Mm -hmm. I don't know if I... I certainly wouldn't call him the hero, but at times he does feel like he's the protagonist or at least the the mainest of the main characters right. and uh yeah it's it's hard you really get the opportunity to choose who it is you're rooting for which is i feel like that's a relatively <laughs> rare book where uh, the author uh says hey like uh Choose from among all these flawed <laughs> characters, you have to find, <laughs> <laughs> find who's your protagonist. Someone you know, your antagonist? Definitely, <laughs> yeah. like you pick yeah. someone because <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, even Abercrombie, it's by the end, anyway. I won't get into any spoilers, but by the end of the trilogy, <laughs> I'd say you can figure out at least who like the outright villain or villains are. Um, and then you got a kind of harder choice between like, uh, who am I rooting for? But here, I don't know, I don't see Hulagu as. Sh- straight up villain in the story yes yeah he has those
1: multi-dimensional aspects he's from his perspective if he brings the whole of the world into one empire then it'll be at peace there'll be no conflict everyone will be ruled fairly um and as they said he says sometimes to to cave on at the beginning sort of says you know, are your people suffering? Or do they not have certain freedoms? Are they not allowed to worship whoever they want? And all these other things that they did. And there there are things in history that show after certain Mongol invaders, not him in particular, other ones, there was a renaissance of certain things like art and culture. And sometimes when they invaded certain cities, they would spare the educated, the mathematicians, the teachers, the people who, you know, philosophers and uh, sometimes people who were brought up in front of khan's, ready to be, you know, killed on the spot, came back with something witty or funny or smart. Sometimes they just chopped their head off because they insulted them or they're having a bad day, you know, or they're hung mm. over from all the wine and Arag. But sometimes <laughs> they'd reward them with huge amounts of wealth and send them off with a smile. And it's, so it's, there are weird, complicated characters. None of them are just plain and simple. Um, you know, a, a, if you've seen Kublai on on the TV show Marco Polo, and of course Halagu, they collected people in their courts. All these odd and weird people that were interesting. You know, Marco Polo himself was essentially a slave for something like eight years whilst he was in the court of Kublai Khan. He wanted to go home and return to Venice. He like, no, you have an interesting way of talking about things and seeing the world, which is true. You will go out and do things for me and come back and tell me what you've seen in your clever and poetic way. And it was only eventually mm-hmm. after he delivered Princess Kokachin to Persia, he was allowed to go home and return and I don't think he ever left again. Um, but it's one of these things that he was, he was a slave right. in all but name, even though he slept in a nice bed and he had servants and all these other things. But they collected oddities and collected peculiar people. But then on the other hand, they'd invade a city, slaughter thousands, create towers of, of heads and, mm. you know, just monstrous acts. And I think it was, I don't think it was Genghis Khan, but one of the later Khans changed the atmosphere of the earth because they killed such a large number of people on the planet earth that the number of dead changed the atmosphere that like the oxygen wow it was one of these ridiculous things like how many people had to have died for that to have happened and they start thinking yeah they did turn the river red with the number of dead people at a certain siege that was real that actually happened from the number of dead bodies and you start to think how many would that be and so believe it or not i've toned down a number of events in the mm-hmm. book mm-hmm. Some of the some of the really, really hard ones I've toned down, and I still get comments from readers on my editor occasionally going, Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, they're like, right? History, it's a part of history. Go back and check. Yeah, you know? yeah. I'm
0: trying to do tone down here. And and that's but the interesting thing I like <laughs> about Hulagu, which to me, he's like in my reading experience of the Judas Blossom, I'm like, okay, this to me is kind of like trying to understand the philosophy behind this Mongolian like desire to just rule the world and what that even like what you have to be like as a human being or as a culture to be so committed to that like I'm just marching on beautiful places and leveling them and killing a bunch of people so you could, Conquer it because it's next on the map. And then Hulagu's like, and then we'll go to this place, and then we'll go to this place. And it's the the drive uh-huh. to to do that and trying to understand like why that is just the destiny of the Mongolian Empire, right? To, to to unpack that is one of the interesting things about understanding Hulagu's like complex character in the book. It's yeah, he's someone who is very smart and very open-minded and very you know, in, in, in terms of like logistics, he's, he's got a scientist guy, he's got, you know, he's willing to listen to his wife, he's willing to, you know, strategize and, and be patient. But then also, he's just got this urge to hit things and, and kill people, you <laughs> know, so it's this interesting yeah. combination that you're like, wow, what a wild period in time that these guys almost took over the known world, you know, they were very close
1: yeah so like the, the stuff to his wife that's real she always traveled with him whenever they took conquered various countries they absorbed some of the army into their own and they'd fight for them mm-hmm. they had chinese engineers they had persian engineers who'd help them with the siege engines and the mathematics and um, astrology because they'd study the stars not for you know what's my what's my sign saying i should fight today or not it's more a case of <laughs> what's the weather like what's mm-hmm. it going to happen in two weeks is when is winter coming obviously they can't march during winter they've got to look at harvest they've got to look at food production all these things because they marched with their you know on horseback they moved so quickly there's the silk road there's transporting goods across the world all of these things combined that make these characters based upon the real people such fascinating and interesting ones and it's i don't think it's in the book but halago did this in real life he sent a number of letters to various people kind of saying you should surrender now because by the time I get there, you've seen what we've already been done. It would be in your best interest to surrender. So he wrote to the Pope. He wrote to the King of France. Mm -hmm. that This is part of history saying, you know what's coming? If if it's good for you, how about you surrender and just give up Rome and say, you'll come to me in my court, Pope, and bow and bend (laughs) the knee. Like he didn't fully understand things, but equally he'd sit down and spend hours talking with a Buddhist philosopher because he was interested in it. And it just such a weird, weird, complicated <laughs> character. So then you put them on a horse and he'll quite happily chop 100 people's heads off because he loves doing it. <laughs> right. So and it's then just you, not, none of them. It's which one of those dimension. things where it's like, is there ever really being
0: done? You know, because let's say there's n- nothing left to conquer. He's still like, if he gets worked up, he's going to punch somebody or something. <laughs> and it's like, What's what that? happens when there's no one left to punch, buddy? Like, it's almost like yeah. by achieving the goal, you, you know you're almost dooming yourself in, in a way it, it's the pursuit you know and so mm. there's some of that there's some of that in hulagu of like oh i just need to get out there and i just need to go 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 <laughs> but then you know there's sometimes where his logical brain comes in and and you know where he's, he's getting advised otherwise and it, it it's an interesting blend that you it, like so weird to imagine that like existing in history it's something so complicated it has to be real you know
1: (laughs) yeah 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 so i I pulled on a lot of things to try and make it as feel so hopefully you can't see the seams either unless you're really knowledgeable about this portion of history or this period you won't know what i've made up apart from a couple of obvious things but the rest of it i've I've hopefully blended it together so you can't be like oh that that's not real and that's not real and that you know i'm going out of my way
0: to not learn about the mongolian empire so i can (laughs) until the last book is out yes afterwards afterwards, i'll I'll enjoy comparing and contrasting but i'm like oh no spoilers Mm -hmm. (laughs) no spoilers (laughs) to the the nightingale and the falcon i can't have it i can't help The only spoilers I have is what a modern day. I know Mongols and everywhere. So something happened. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) But uh, that's as far as I'm going to look into it. So Mm -hmm. as much as we are drawing on history, you're also bringing in the fantastical into this story. And, you know, without getting into any spoilers, you do have... Hulagu's youngest son, Temujin, who um, you know, you're saying he's delving into something far more powerful and dangerous than they could ever imagine. So when you knew you were going to bring in like a fantastical element, a magic system, how'd you go about creating something to fit seamlessly into real historical events and historical characters? What was the process like of creating this particular magic system?
1: It was so the root of it is actually based in fact which is why Mm. it also parts of it will feel familiar there's a defunct defunct splinter of an old religion that some of the names and some of the things i talk about were reused by this defunct kind of sect that doesn't exist and it hasn't existed for hundreds of years so based upon reading about this i thought "Mm, that's a bit that's a bit odd. That's an interesting kind of thing. Wonder, wonder what happened to them, and they we didn't know much about them, and they didn't have any churches, and they didn't have any priests. And the more I started to delve into it, the more I questions I asked, like, well, well, why not? Why didn't have any priests, and why don't we know much about them, and what where have they gone, and what happened to them? And then I started thinking about how the Mongols were kind of very open to various religions. They'd let people pray to whoever they wanted up to a point in certain parts of the Mongolian empire, the longer it went on, other parts converted to Islam very quickly and just kind of like spread like wildfire. Eventually the golden horde was completely, uh, completely uh, became Muslim and that kind of thing. But to begin with, they were a lot more open. And so it was in delving into this kind of part of history and this thing that I there again, I knew nothing about. And during my research, I thought, Oh, that's a, that's an interesting angle. And I started building upon what was already there again. So I, I don't want to say what the the splinter of the religion is because that will give away some of the things in the book. But it doesn't explain the magic system. that came from me. And it's not a spoiler to say as the story goes on in the rest of the trilogy you will find out more about this thing. There's things that crop up um there's other people that crop up and you'll see there again it's not the main driving force of the story. Historical events are what's happening in the world but they're there around the edges. There's one of the four characters and he has a role to play in events. Um, and so it's, there again, it's quite different from my earlier books where the, the battle mages were essentially frontline artillery. The, the soldiers clear the battlefield, they come in and they just wail on each other throwing fireballs and lightning bolts. And, you know, that's kind of it. This is something mm-hmm. totally different. So it's, it's more subtle, it's more nuanced. And... It's mostly unknown by people in the period, and of course, you know, completely made up. So no one knows about it in history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, it's
2: interesting. I I also will refrain from spoilers, but uh, I feel like you you did a great job of uh, getting a lot of action and war events and politicking. All this happens in the first book, but I feel like you like you're ready to really take off with the second book and where I feels like it's one of those where the, uh, like the ground is laid, like we are set for things to really go next. So I'm, I'm curious, how'd you, uh, how'd you find the balance of, uh, having a first book that's extremely entertaining while still allowing it to serve this this setup role, because I I found there's some other series that we've read where the first book is just like all set up and there's not really a lot of events that uh, take place. And then there's other books where it feels like they blew through their entire idea in that first book. And you're like, I don't know where this is going the second, but I guess they signed a deal to write a trilogy. So here they go. So how do you find that balance with uh, writing a first book?
1: So with with doing this set in a part of history and it's based on history, there's no kind of easy access, you know, off ramp. They all live happily ever after or they all live terribly ever after because history just keeps on rolling. So I had to, when I started writing this first book, have an end point in mind for the third book. And I mm-hmm. plan all my books fairly detailed anyway. So I knew where I was working towards and based upon that, even in a small amount of time that I'm covering, there are a lot of historic events. So I'm not going to run out of things to pull on. <laughs> Unlike other people, as you say, they might blow all ideas in the first book. I've got tons I can pull on. If I'm if I'm stumbling or struggling, let's go and have a look at what's happening that year. Oh, right, there's 20 right. things I can use. Um, but equally, I, I didn't want it to be just one battle, then another battle, another battle, which is what it was in history, but spread out a lot more. I wanted to show the repercussions. and. By the end of that first book, quite a lot has changed in the world and for the characters and their arcs. And it's the same in the second book and the same in the third book. So every time something is changing quite a lot, the status quo at the end of every book is quite different. And I know sometimes people say the second book can feel kind of like it sags, like nothing happens. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can say that about a lot of trilogies, but this one, there's so much going on in every book. It's really not true that the plot is constantly moving everything's constantly changing just from at the start of the judas blossom to the end you've seen them change chariot territory move around go to other places characters have, have you know gone through various arc things have changed some of them aren't there anymore and it, and it just and it carries on in that way but it was finding the balance originally there was another battle in the first book but we took it out because it just felt like it was a bit too much And it just felt like it was becoming too much more about just a pure war and action book where it's focused on the characters around war and around conquest. But it shouldn't just be, right, we're done with that one. Now let's go to the next one and fight the next one. You know, I love writing Mm -hmm. battle scenes. But as you said, when you spoke to Joe, it's like once you've written 20 battle scenes and you get to write that 21st one, got to do something different. It's got to do something interesting. It has to be something special. And, you know, I've done a lot of war and action books already with my previous ones, so I'm trying to do something different every time and show something, um, if possible, that we've not seen and make it important to the overall story, not just, yep, they've conquered another city. It's like, well, so what? What does that mean? How does that change things for all the characters? Um, there's a turning point with Temujin you've read where something happens and he thought oh great i've 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 done this thing and it's a good thing and it turns out to be a terrible thing and he hadn't mm-hmm. thought it all through he hadn't thought about the repercussions of what it means to the war and his father and what next and it's like ah okay so it's 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 that kind of thing it's i wanted to put a lot of stuff in this book and move things forward but not make it just feel like a like a one constant battle from start to the end of the book
0: mm
2: yeah so much of like temujin's arc it's it's a lot more personal even though the stakes and things that happen are mm-hmm. uh, at the level of like shaping and changing nations and empires uh, it's uh, really much more grounded in his relationship with his father and uh ways in which he'd like to earn his father's admiration respect love all all of those things and uh, i think uh, that's uh, that's where the best parts lie for me are in the the characters' personal journeys and and also uh, you get into this politicking that our our Game of Thrones fans would appreciate all these like <laughs> conversations happening behind the scenes uh, um, and I'm I'm assuming a lot of these aspects of of betrayal and uh, the like. Uh, The kind of stuff happening that we're describing uh, there with the politicking, uh, I assume that plays a role in why you went for the title the Judas Blossom. I'm still I'm curious because I'm uh, when I first saw the Judas Blossom as the title. I'm such a fancy reader used to like, okay, this is going to be some sort of like magical artifact that is going to be ridiculously powerful and blah, blah, blah. So I'm waiting for them to find the Judas Blossom, this, uh, you know, uh, one flower to rule them all. But it's uh, that moment never quite comes. so it's more thematic the name and i'm curious yes. to hear you in the most spoiler-free way you can get into it like what motivated the title i don't know how much like because sometimes i guess the title uh is is a group process with uh, other folks yeah. but uh <laughs> did you have control over the title and uh if so what went into the naming of this book
1: so this is the first title in the first series where the titles haven't changed from what i originally pitched which is okay. quite, quite interesting. Normally, I picture a title <laughs> and it's like, oh, eh, well, we need to tweak it a little bit. Okay. So, the title in this case refers to a, a poem by a Persian poet called Fedosi That's where it comes from. And the poet, the poem is quite a long one and talks about various things. The title, as you say, has other inferences. So, it refers to the fact that it's a Persian thing and the book is very Persian influenced and inspired. Um, it, the idea of Judas is obviously betrayal, and there's a number of betrayers and being people being betrayed in the book, so that's what it refers to at the same time. The title of the series, The Nightingale and the Falcon, refers to the two national birds of Persia and mm. Mongolia. So the nightingale is the national bird of Iran, and, and, and the falcon is the national bird of Mongolia. So it suggests this kind of war, this ongoing struggle between mm. these two nations, and that's what it's from. Um, and there are two parts in, in each book that have a line of dialogue or a line of poetry a line of something from someone that references what's kind of kind of happen so there's a thing to sun Tzu, and there's another thing from Rumi in the book and it's the same again so the book two title is but a working title and so far we're okay with it <laughs> and there again there it's not that da- you won't be looking for the thing but it's referring to something thematic and the same on the third book as well. So don't be looking for the artifact for book two and the same for book three.
0: (laughs) Indiana Jones won't be swooping in being like that belongs in the museum, the Judas blossom. (laughs) No, no. Top men. Top men. Mm. so yes the it's ominously titled book one of the nightingale and the falcon what is your plans for the series are we doing the classic trilogy or have you like how far ahead have we thought of have we you said you're an intense plotter so i assume you have the whole book series in mind already
1: yes it's it's a trilogy um i wanted to do it as a trilogy so that i would know have a good ending point and i think doing it in three books is is a good way to do it i could I could have done a lot more i could have done you know four trilogies connected over this period and it only would have spanned like two years but you know if this does well and just and people are interested there are plenty of other stories to tell within this space within this part of the world so book two is written and it's done and we have a working title that'll be out july next year and i'm sort of halfway through book three and i'll finish writing book three by christmas this year for 2025 so mm. Then we'll see what happens next. But yes, I've, right. I've planned everything. I'm ready. I'm I'm kind of in the, I feel like I'm in the home stretch, even though I've just passed the halfway point on book three. This has been sort of, you know, four or five years in total from planning and making notes right up to now. Uh, and by the end of it, it'll be kind of, you know, seven years when book three comes out. I will be done. I'll be ready when <laughs> book three comes out. I'll be like, but you just what now?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, remind me what happens in that? Because yeah, that would have yeah, been yeah. two years into something new at that point. You know, was that really I, I, history or did i invent did i make connection? that up? <laughs> i mean i should get a book and check that wait wait you know yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be a thing but yeah i'm 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 getting there i'm nearly done on on book three um yes a trilogy and then we'll see if if, if the world does well the stories will well people want to see more from these characters there's plenty of scope to revisit it that's for sure
0: <laughs> i mean yeah you still. this is only 1260 you know you've got a whole you
1: got hundreds mm-hmm. of years
0: to come through before we catch up to modern day.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot of stuff going on: countries rising and falling, empires rising and falling. Oh absolutely. yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So is
2: your hope then to continue with more of the historical fiction, historical fantasy uh, type stuff in the future? Even uh, you know, oh, stuff other than the Mongolian Empire? Are you you enjoying this? I know you said that you like to torture yourself. So (laughs) I I guess the answer is yes. But uh, yeah, you're, are you thinking of sticking in that realm uh, in terms of the historical fantasy? Or are you looking maybe to get back into the more traditional uh, straightforward fantasy?
1: My plan at the moment is to do something very different next again because I need to have a bit of a rest from this because it was so intense with the research that even though it is fantasy, I had to do a lot more research. So the other day, I needed to get a character from point A to point B, and if I'm doing it in a fantasy book of my own creation, it's like, they get on a ship, they go on a dragon, they ride (laughs) a turtle, what does it matter? I've made it up, I've made the rules, (laughs) that's it. With this, I spent an hour and a half researching if it was possible to get from point a to point b how you would do it roughly how long it would take and that's six eight lines in the book that someone will be like yep fine Uh, historians who know it might be like well that's not completely right but everyone else won't care they'll breeze over (laughs) that paragraph probably even skip it and carry on with the story who knows you know skim that bit but that took me an hour and a half so, hmm. it's been intense writing this trilogy for other reasons. i've I've not missed the deadline. Everything's been fine, but it's taken me a lot longer. So, I want to do standalones next, if possible, very radically different ideas, experiment with a few different things. And then, after that, perhaps revisit a historical um fantasy series. If this one does well, I've got some ideas of how where I could go and what I could do next. I could, you know, jump forward a bunch of time I could go back a bunch of time and see what was happening with you know Genghis Khan there's plenty of scope mm. and plenty of places but it's a case of if people like it they want to see more of this then then perhaps in the future but I think right now change gears do something different and then uh give myself more time to research things I think that's the plan
2: yeah, you heard it here first. Stephen Arian's upcoming fantasy novel. Next up will be the Turtles' Voyage, a, a. It. It's yeah. primarily focused on turtle travel. Um, yeah, it's super easy.
1: Yes. Any convenience? Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> Gosh, it, I'm just. It, it's so interesting. Like the like the inspiration in which you like you drew on to create the story and almost like the the selective constraints you chose to put upon yourself to create the story like it has to be accurate in these ways but not these ways i'm going to do this but not this it's almost like a it's like an interesting setup to create a book. It's like, okay, here's the rules: you gotta write a book. It's gotta be about these characters, but you know, you can't do this, can't do that. It has to be <laughs> accurate. It, and, and in that kind of pressure, you know, you're you're creating um, a, a a work of of fantasy, you know, a total a work of fiction, and I, I, by by focusing on the characters, you had mentioned that earlier, and to me, I think that's like mm. a big part of to me the success of the book. You know, Dylan and I, all of our favorite books are are character driven and and thematically driven, yeah. and and I think that is a very rewarding aspect of this book is, is that you do in all of these you know, history, fantasy, different different nations uh, espionage you know all that stuff it Mm. it comes down to the humanity of of the characters and the the constraints that they were put under you know there's romances that are that can or can't form based off of pressures and society things and there's things that people want to do but can't do and there's things you know people do things you agree with and then things you're kind of confused about it and that's what I think you know really (laughs) drew me to the series and um like i can't believe hulagu is most people's least favorite character i'm still also kind of caught up on that a little bit <laughs> because it's like he's like the main guy you know I, i'm tripping over myself <laughs> thinking about
1: that
2: but uh <laughs> it's also uh like it's, it, i think it's always interesting the framing of those kind of questions because sometimes it's like well least favorite character it's like well uh, Hulagu's probably the the last guy I want to like spend the day with, uh, in case mm-hmm. you know he gets angry about something. But uh, at the same time. He might be the most compelling character for me because of all those aspects <laughs> we're talking about—how multifaceted he is, and how much time we get with him and get to know where he's coming from. Uh, so it's a, it's always a balance. It's like hard to ask people even those questions because like, what do you mean your least favorite character? Like the character that you least would like as a person if you knew them, or the character that you least enjoy reading about and I mean I enjoyed all the uh, the main characters and their point of views but I don't know I think Kulagu's chapters were the ones that I was like you know (laughs) you always see the name at the top of the uh, page and you're like okay so this is what we're in for I feel like Kulagu was the one that I I was most compelled
1: by of all of them. No one's chosen him as their favorite character, though. Apart from you guys, probably. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: He's up there. Quite He's telling.
2: That mm, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't yeah, say anything good about us, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, maybe you know. we. Yeah, we have a a better chance of uh, of winning the coveted uh oh God, what is it the for podcast uh, section of the uh, heavy metal uh, mm-hmm. award. Yeah, oh, so. maybe. Oh, it's hellfest, like the Hellfest Inferno. podcast, right. mate. If we. Yeah embrace ulagu khan we might get that hellfest award
1: the The interesting thing about as you're saying writing with this within parameters is that in some ways i'd almost done work for hire for myself as if like someone had said to me right go and write write a star wars book in this mm-hmm. period between films five and six here's a bunch of history, go off and do your own thing. Oh, can I blow up a Death Star? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) In some ways, it's like that. It's like I've almost prepared myself for working on the next Star Wars novels because I've set the framework of history, certain events that can't be moved, certain things that can be moved. And then there's gaps where you're like, there's an interesting story I could tell. There's an interesting story I could tell. And they do that all the time. Like They get people in to say, right, go and write a story about an ex-wing pilot who's gone off and done something in this period. Off you go. And you get a whole bunch of info that you can't change. You've got gray areas. You have to get things signed off. You know, I, I wasn't getting my stuff signed off, except by my editors, my agent. But equally, I didn't want to just completely ignore history totally radically. As the story goes on, though, as I say, I'm, I'm gently steering the ship. It's like one of those tankers yeah. that takes so many miles to turn, you know, so many degrees. I'm kind of doing that. That mm-hmm. oh, I'm doing, uh, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly. That by the time you get to the second book, things will have changed because you've seen it happening, and that's perfectly fine. And you get to the third book. Yep, I understand why we're going here because I've seen it happen how far it deviates from history there, that's that's going to be less of a let's not look too too closely at that really <laughs> yeah the it's just going to upset someone three, you know it's, yeah. it's going to upset someone <laughs> so that's fine <laughs> it, i do
0: find it interesting this idea that like almost this constraint inspires creativity in some ways mm. or restrictions yeah. inspire creativity because you're just like yes right whatever you want but it's like okay well then i hop on my turtle and i go there And then it's like, okay, well, now that I'm under some of these constraints, I have to write in these creative ways in which i'm going to get there and now i have to consider what would my character feel if he realized that all of a sudden it's de- december now and he can't go where he wants to go because it's mm-hmm. too far away you know like he can't just get on he doesn't have his many. if he had a turtle he'd certainly get on it and go right away he would love <laughs> nothing more but uh he can't and that's <laughs> frustrating you know so it's kind of in those constraints and that you you've kind of found ways to inspire some of these creative moments and I I find that really fascinating and you know I read about it in other authors works and even in like you know shows and and in stories and things Star Wars is another great example where it's like you kind of write yourself into a corner sometimes you kind of creatively bankrupt yourself sometimes but other times it's like hey you now have the inspiration to tell a unique story in a unique point of view in a unique period of time what could that be like mm. if you commit to that idea and you really get to when your character focus like this book is you get to really push out some interesting thoughts and ideas around those themes so really fascinating stuff yeah, like
1: like the weather was very much an important thing I mean mm. we have it in every fantasy book and we talk about it and it changes things and if you get to a book like um mark lawrence's ancestry books where the whole world is freezing over and everyone's dying and there's only one strip that's kind of clear that's very much an important part of this the story that infects everything Mm -hmm. whereas in this book and other historical fiction books and historical fantasy books the case of right when it gets to winter everything stops the war doesn't carry on because the roads are ice shut you're not going up that mountain with twenty thousand people to fight no one's gonna you know you're not traveling you have to kind of stop Go back, wait out the winter. When spring comes, we start again. And that's true. They had to do it. It's a case of, right, the war stops now. And then we lick our wounds, rebuild, and it starts again in spring. And it did. It did. So it's I, it's historical fact. And I had to kind of lean into that too. I couldn't just be like, yeah, they have got flamethrowers and now they go <laughs> in the next sure city and like, oh, that's pushing it. And it comes at a
0: very you know. specific time. It's like, oh, winter's coming. When? It could be years, it could be decades. Winter's like, coming. when. when? Yeah. when? Yeah. It really right. De- <laughs> it really
2: depends on when's most convenient for my writing process like, <laughs> when winter <when> comes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, perhaps you, no, like, no, like, no one okay. author like that, but uh, it's
1: yeah, and of course, you just use fire-breathing turtles instead of the, the flamethrowers.
2: So but yeah, this uh, is
1: why they they studied the heavens so carefully, and they had as astronomers and astrologers, and they built observatories to study the weather patterns, because they needed to know these things. they critical to everything, you know, transport, merchants, food, warfare. So it's all, all kind of integrated and tied in. And there again, I don't have to make stuff up. And you already know what a bunch of stuff is because it's our world. So I don't need to kind of delve into that. I could just refer to things and move on. Right. It is funny how in a fantasy story, the same thing, like, oh,
2: winter is so harsh, you can't even move your troops. It's like, seems so fantastical and uh, intense. And then you're like, oh, wait, that's just a, thing that would happen and they just yeah. wouldn't fight for the winter in the He's real like, world i'll
0: take this, this city and then i'll take this city and oh shoot it's november i can't take that city Darn it!
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I did have a have a, a moment at one point when i was halfway through writing book no i finished book one i was one book two and i suddenly thought i was eating dinner and i dropped my fork and i thought wait they go to this city in february is that winter in this part of the world that's <laughs> good that's good research like, oh my god is that, is that winter in this hemisphere is this here? oh no I, I just left my dinner and went and checked it i was like okay i'm all right i'm all right okay okay Because right now you know down in australia it's it's end of autumn it's it's not the middle of summer where they are they're kind of getting ready for winter whereas here middle of summer really hot and sticky and I'm thinking things like that suddenly occurred to me Mm. I (laughs) thought, oh no (laughs) (laughs) hate when that happens (laughs) Uh oh man Uh Uh,
0: Stephen we have we could talk to you all day but I you know it's late for us and it's even later across the pond uh where you are so we don't want to keep you for for too much longer. And certainly there's so much more we'd want to talk about the book, but I guess we'll have to wait until July 11th and afterwards to give people some time to, to check Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. the Judas Blossom when it finally does release. Um, I mean, as we wrap things up, um, Mike, the only other thing I would, I wanted to mention with the Judas Blossom is, yeah, we talked about the historical Mm -hmm. nature of it, the fantastical nature, but one of the things I, I wanted to tell you that I appreciated was that you still take the time to make the book fun and entertaining. Like, so thank you for that, because I feel like sometimes you, like. you read these fantasy <laughs> books that take themselves down this path of it's about the Mongol Empire. It was a very serious time. People were getting killed. It was sad. It was like, yeah, but it was also kind of like, shocking and entertaining and there could be fights and battles and stakes and we can still be entertained by it we can be shocked and appalled by it and feel bad about it but we can also find the entertainment value in it and that's something i want to make sure listeners know what's in store for them because you you do get the exciting battle scenes you get the exciting like combat scenes fighting scenes you have warriors you have politicians it's it, it is a very fun entertainment driven book as well so Like that was a very impressive balance to strike. And uh, like I I just was appreciative of the fact that you're like, yeah, and then there's a cool hand-to-hand combat scene here. And then you know, yeah, then there's a cool like (laughs) duel here, you know. Like I'm like, yes, thank you. I I appreciate that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome, Charles. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
0: thank you, thank you. Because sometimes like, can this book like, did we forget to make this fun, guys? Like, what
2: happened?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the, there's some comedy in the books, but it, in the books, but it's humour, really. It's not kind of like laugh out loud moments. They have to kind right. of have a balance, I think. Even within the darkest per- periods, there's going to be humour. You know, mm-hmm. people laugh at funerals all the time, because you need to they have that release. And it's the same in the book. You know, there's certain things that happen, that are just kind of amusing or weird or funny. And that's just a part of life, really.
0: Well said, well, um, Stephen. Again, thank you so much for coming on. I, I think we'll wrap it up around here. But guys, be sure to check out, you know, check out the Judas Blossom on July 11th, and then, you know, Stephen has several other books. How many nine books are we at now? Is this the tenth? Yeah, this is number. This is number nine. Yeah, this is number nine. So, so much to read <laughs> beyond that too. So you don't want to miss any of that. I mean, guys, come on, think of it. The inaugural Hellfest Inferno Award with Battle Mage. If you have not yes. read that, what are you doing? Let's go. Rock Especially on Especially our guys. Heavy
2: Metal fans out there. <laughs> Come yeah. on, man. You gotta get
1: on if, this, right? If now. you're
0: listening to this and you love heavy metal and you haven't read Battle Mage, like what are you doing at this point? Like no. you, we, we've hit the target demo so perfectly now that you just <laughs> gotta check it out. I know I'll be checking it out. Uh, I, i'm a metal fan of jason personally I, i've been to many shows <laughs> i've had friends who are in metal bands so i i do appreciate it it's been a it's been a hot minute though <laughs> okay okay okay. but i do love <laughs> me some good i do love me some good health vests and infernos and blood and guts and stuff so i, I fun I- Always yes. fun. It's always, always good,
1: right?
2: <laughs> and you wonder why Hulagu is his yeah. It all makes book. sense now. Suddenly, it all just makes sense. I'm yeah. Like, yeah. Okay, I get it. I get it.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's, works, it's still so, fiction,
0: guys. It's still entertaining.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not real. It's not real. It's not, real. It's not
0: real.
2: It's, like it really happened. Yeah. Uh, or, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> no, <laughs> very spoilers. creative, yeah. To come up with this whole Mongolian Empire is very Whoa, well thought just... out, and <laughs> luckily, nothing like that existed in the nope. world.
0: Nope, nope, 1260 nope. Persia, how inspired! Cool. <laughs> All right, Stephen, thank you, thank you for coming on. And uh, thank, thank you, you so listeners, much. for listening. Um, we greatly appreciate it. Uh, and as always, guys, go forth and conquer, friends.